What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. A lot of educators today, including myself, are talking about text complexity. The basic assumption here is that as readers grow, they need to be able to read and comprehend increasingly complex texts. Without a doubt, becoming a better reader is an important step in the literacy development of all children. However, as an educator, I have a very strong concern that we are measuring text complexity in the wrong way. Since the 1920s, we've been quantifying text complexity through readability formulas. The most familiar are the Fontas and Pinnell, the Lexel, and the Accelerated Reader Rankings. While leveling books in this way can be helpful for students as they begin to understand their own reading abilities, it's important to be clear that these levels are not the only way that we should judge the complexity of texts. Because these formulas rely only on a limited view of a text, and they don't take into account the reader themselves, these numbers should only be used as a starting place for book selection. Since no experimental studies have established standards that reveal the optimal level for learning, comprehension, interest, and efficient reading, we cannot rely on formulas to help us find the right books for the right readers. As an educator, I'm against using any type of system that forces children to read books that fall into a narrow category of their perceived reading ability. Preventing students from checking out a library book because it's not on their level, or not allowing them to receive credit for reading a book that's above their level, only prevents children from experiencing the same freedom that we have as adult readers to choose books that are right for us. So let's help kids find the books they enjoy and put the use of readability formulas in their correct place because complexity, while important, is not something we should use to prevent kids from reading. And that's a little advice from Rachel's World. What role do aunts and uncles and extended family play in developing literacy in children? Our first guest on Worlds Awaiting, Lynette Christensen, professor in the BYU School of Education, says they have a big role. She cites her own experiences as an aunt, as well as important research on the topic. Lynette Christensen works with the BYU Positive Behavior Support Initiative and has been actively involved in the implementation and research of this program in the public schools. Here's Rachel and Lynette. I'm excited to welcome my friend Lynette to the studio today. Welcome, Lynette. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rachel. I am excited to have you today because we share something. We are both aunts. We both have nieces and nephews, and we spend a lot of time developing those relationships with our nieces and nephews. And one of the things that we do is develop, help them develop with their literacy. And so I think this is a cool kind of conversation for us to have for our listeners to hear because it's not just moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and those types of people. It's aunts and uncles and extended family that really play a role in this. So so let's start out. What What is the super cool role that aunts can play in literacy development? Oh, it is super fun. I, I'm fortunate to have a bunch of nieces and nephews. My sister lives just up around the corner from me, has five wonderful kids. And one of the things I've learned is that the relationships are so much more powerful if we spend time, quantity and quality time. 
and we can have a lot of fun doing that, but a lot of great conversations and deep feelings and, and discussions occur when we're together. But all great relationships happen in that kind of a context, right? That we listen to each other and that we listen without judgment and that we share what we feel and our insights. And, you know, kids are willing to tell you a lot of things if you suspend judgment, basically. And, and that doesn't mean you don't have a teaching moment if there is one. But, you know, I was just thinking we, we uh, attended the production of Charlotte's Web last night here at BYU. And my seven-year-old niece Zoe and I, we read chapter books when she sleeps over. And we recently read Charlotte's Web. And then, of course, we watched the movies and we've been to the show. And we both cry when Charlotte dies. But... Wow, talk about a powerful conversation about why we were sad that Charlotte was dying and why did we cry when she died. Kids have deep feelings and deep thoughts. And if you listen and let them talk, you get to those really cool places. And I think that's interesting because I think particularly with ants, since we're talking about ants today, but I'm sure it's with uncles and other kinds of extended family Part of that judgment is kind of automatically withdrawn, right? Because parents have some form of judgment just because they're parents. But when you're an aunt, you're an older adult, but you don't really have that form of judgment. So I think conversations just tend to be easier when you are able to start from a place in that relationship where you're an older, wiser adult, but you're not responsible. Does that make sense? Well, and I think the fact that you're fun and you're this safe place that's a little different, not that home's not safe. I mean, we all know for some kids it's not, but yeah, there's just, just that fun aspect makes it an open, different kind of place. And that's, that's a perfect place to start. I love this idea of connected literacy, I guess is what I'm going to call it. This sense of you've read the book, you saw the play, you saw the movies. And that to me is a really powerful thing. So do you do that often with things or was this just with Charlotte's Web? Oh, we do that as often as we can. In fact, we get into some fun conversations about the artwork in the books that we're reading, if there is artwork in there and what we like about it and what maybe we don't like about it or what is it telling us about the story? Is there something it's telling us that we didn't really get from just reading the words? And then kids have such great imaginations. So and they love to play the characters in the book. And so if you can provide them the means to do that, dress-ups and all kinds of imaginative play kinds of things, and then play with them. I love to to do those imaginative play fun things with the kids and play the characters and I I love to do that too because I think it's a great way to just extend the story to extend their understanding of it and again start those really important conversations and to see where they're coming from and that to me kind of comes down to this literacy development is all about relationships with children. I think that's kind of foundational. It if you is. have a good relationship with a child, you can help them develop in their literacy. I absolutely agree. I think that good, healthy relationships are the foundation to many things that improve our quality of life. But I also believe, too, that there are different forms of literacy. You know, we have to be socially competent to do well in life, to have lasting relationships and lasting employment and 
you know, there's a physical competence about how we take care of ourselves and look out for our health. There's a spiritual competence because there's a spiritual component to all of this that we need to look out for in whatever way that is for us. And so to me, literacy is so much more all-encompassing than just reading or writing or language or... I I can't agree more and listeners to the show will know that I totally agree with that because that's like the theme of our show. So let, let's go into that idea of kind of the physical and, and uh, spiritual and social interactions. How do you think ants, particularly in a child's life, help develop those skills? What, what kind of role can we play as, you know, a loving adult that's not a parent or a grandparent? How can we help them develop those particular competencies? Well, anyone who's been around children recognizes that they are like little video cameras. I mean, even teenagers. I mean, it doesn't have to be just the little ones. They're watching and they're learning from what we do. And so just the day-to-day, how we handle situations and how we interact and we do things, they're getting a model of how they should therefore handle those same kinds of things. And that's part of the reason I think fun and humor is pretty important is, you know, life can be pretty hard and challenges come to us. But if we can laugh at some of those things and show that, yep, okay, I'm going to dust myself, pick myself up, dust myself off and move on as best I can. Those are important things for kids to see, not only our goodness and a good role model, but what do we do when things aren't going so well and how do we handle that? that those are important skills. Those, those, those kind of skills give kids resilience. And in today's world, kids need a lot of resilience, a lot more than I needed, I think, when I was a kid. Oh, I, yeah, I, I truly believe that. I think that I look back when I was a kid and I think I don't need half of the skills that, that kids need today. And part of that, I think, is being able to develop um, a wide range of mentor models, right? Because if we just have one mentor model, we're just getting one viewpoint. So that's one of the things I love about extended family and ants playing a role in all of this is because that there's these multiple models, right? You can see them in different ways. Um, And for us, I know, you know, we're career ladies, we're single career ladies. And for me, I think that's cool for my nieces and nephews to see, to see kind of a different pattern of, yeah, of how does, I relax with, with life, yeah. Yeah, what does somebody do whose life didn't quite go the path a lot of other people's lives went? You know, you make an interesting point, too. There's research that shows how important it is for kids to have a, adults, significant adults in their lives outside of their parents. And the more of those significant adults a kid can have or youth can have, the more likely they are to be resilient and be successful. And, and, and obtain the competencies that they need to have to be happy in life and to be good contributing citizens and all those things we hope will happen. That's really a very cool way to look at it. There's the more the more kind of models and mentors we have, the easier it is to to develop like we need to and to become the kind of people we need to. So I know you have you have nieces and nephews that are close. I do too. But you also have nieces and nephews that are not close. So how do you how do you interact with with those nieces and nephews? Oh, my goodness. I just actually took a couple of my niece one of my nieces and one of my nephews on vacation with me. We were at a family gathering. We were talking about places to visit and go. And they both mentioned to me that they'd like to go to Hawaii. 
Well, I had planned to go. So I said, I'd be happy to help you guys go and do that. So so um, my nephew, let's see, he's 23 now. My niece just turned 19. And my parents went. We, we, we kind of we sorted this out and planned. Incredible, fantastic trip to be with these young adults who are just coming into their own and to see how kind and considerate they were to their grandparents as we traveled and their excitement like at times they were excited like kids but then I'm excited like a kid when I go places like this <laughs> so just you know it again none of this stuff happens outside of time and relationship you have to yeah. spend time to have the relationships yeah. you know I think I think that's an interesting note that kind of wrapping this conversation up there's lots of benefits for ants to be involved in kids' lives. I think we've discussed that very obviously. But there's some benefits to you as an ant. So what what benefit do you think you personally derive from engaging in the lives of these wonderful children? Oh, wow. This is the closest I come to being a mom. In fact, I'm like second mom. It was fun on vacation because people kept trying to figure out, are these both your kids or wait, wait, who are these guys with you? <laughs> you know, but it's just that just the, the, the opportunity to interact closely with young people is powerful to me on any front. But when they're your own family members and there's that deeper bond and love, it just deepens as you spend time together. And I hope someday they're going to want to take care of me when I'm a little old lady and need someone to <laughs> help me go to the grocery store. <laughs> and that's part of it, too. I mean, and that the loving and supporting each other, no matter where we are, is, is really what makes family important. So I really appreciate this chat today, Lynette. I, I am so grateful that you are an amazing example and an amazing aunt who is supporting her nieces and nephews. And I I hope that uh, maybe some of our listeners out there who are aunts too can take some inspiration from this and engage with their nieces and nephews in the marvelous spectrum of literacy development. Thanks so much. You're welcome. That was Rachel Wadham with Lynette Christensen talking about how aunts and uncles can play a big role in developing literacy in their nieces and nephews. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Rachel visits with elementary school teacher Ed Spicer about helping children become critical readers, critical about what they're reading and why they're reading. As a teacher, Mr. Spicer spends most of his time with his own first grade students, but also loves building young high school authors through the Tiger Tales Literary Contest, which he has coordinated and judged for 15 years. Ed Spicer has also served on the Caldecott, Prince, and various other award committees of the American Library Association. Here's Rachel with Ed. We're talking with Ed Spicer today, who is a master teacher. And you know, Ed, one of the things that I know when I work with my pre-service teachers is that we really need to work to help students become critical readers and to learn how not only to understand the form and format, but become critical of what they're reading and why they're reading. Oh, yes. That's a really important point and something well worth noting, especially to new teachers that may be listening into this conversation. I start my very first day of class by giving my students permission to not like the books I read to them. And we have these hand gestures in my classroom after we're done where, 
you know, one thumb up means I liked it, and one thumb down means I didn't like it. And in the middle, there were things I liked and things I didn't like, and I'm not quite sure. Or two thumbs up, you know, if I only could listen to one book the whole year, it would be this one. Or two thumbs down, I don't ever want to hear that book as long as I live. And kids need that freedom to like and not like books based on their own experiences. And too often, the teacher is always right, or at least that's the mentality, in that if the teacher is reading something, there must be something wrong with me if I don't like it. And my kids know from the get-go that they don't have to like what I like, and we can still be friends, and we can still go out to recess together, and we can still play together. But whether they like it or whether they don't like it, they absolutely have to tell me what is in the text that makes them like the book and what is in the text that makes them not like the book. That is such an important capacity. And I think one of the things we need to do as teachers and parents or just adults that are engaging in this conversation is become critical readers ourselves. So how did you become a critical reader? What experience and background did you have that helped you be a critical reader in that way too? Well, I learned to read George the Policeman because I had a brother that sat with me until I memorized every single word. And I can still remember, and and I still get goosebumps when I remember that moment in which I realized that one of the words that was in George the Policeman was also in another book. And once that idea was planted in my head, you couldn't keep me from the library. I checked out books every single day, and by the end of the year, they even took my picture for the paper with my stack of 100 books that I had read that summer. And um, I can remember sitting in the old federated stores in the California area and reading Nancy Drew books because they always had the newest ones that our library hadn't yet got in and processed. And uh, fortunately, the store owners were kind enough to let this young man who couldn't afford to purchase any books actually just sit on their floors and read them hours at a time over the weekends. So my my journey into literacy was the fact that when I was a first grader, uh, I was that student that no one wanted to be around. You know, I cut the ponytail off of the girl in front of me. I broke all the windows in the third grade classroom. I, I wasn't aiming for them. And I um, broke a gas line and had our wing evacuated. Um, I didn't know what recess was until I was, you know, too old for it practically. But reading suddenly meant that I no longer had to rely on getting in trouble to get attention that was part of what I was seeking with that behavior and something that guides me in dealing with the students I have today. That's a wonderful experience. I appreciate you sharing that. And it just goes to show how diverse all of our reading experiences are, but how much they open an amazing world to each of us and allow us to see something we might not normally experience. Teachers have to have lots and lots and lots of books around because you never can tell what book it's going to be. George the Policeman, I I don't even know if I have exactly the title right. I can't find it. You know, I don't even, you know, it was something that could have been 20 years old when I was reading it in the 50s. Uh, but in my classroom several years ago, there was a book by Catherine Teagan called Snowman Magic. And it was a fine, it's a fine book. 
I, you know, I like it a lot. I wouldn't say that it would be my favorite picture book, but it's, it's a good book. But I had a young man named Bryson find this book, and Bryson couldn't read this book. He, but every single time we had choice reading time, he would get that same book and go sit by himself and read it. And I asked him one day, and I said, Bryson, you know, every single day you're picking out snowman magic. You know, what's going on? And I actually did a video of this that I can send you the link if anyone's interested. Yes, we'd love to and have it. Which he, in which he answers that question and says that, you know, you never could read that book, and it's a long book, and it's got lots of words, and now I can read the whole thing all by myself, and I'm going to go on, and I'm going to write books, and, and my books are going to have like a thousand pages in them. And, um, and, but that book turned him into a reader. That book is what gave him the motivation to read. Had another young man that did the same thing. He carried around at recess and at lunch every single day, the third wimpy kid book. He couldn't read that book when he first got it, but that was him setting his goal for himself. And boy, by the end of the year, he could read it. I love that. And one of the tricks, though, as an adult is balancing this what the children need versus what we like. And I know oftentimes adults will try to pressure children to like something that they like. So how do we balance that? (laughs) Well, uh, it's really more important to just let children read and let them read whatever they want. Because if they enjoy it and if they do it, even if it's Nancy Drew, not books that I would recommend to anyone today, but they turn me into a reader. And same thing with Wimpy Kids, same thing with, you know, Captain Underpants and some of the other books that parents often find problems with in terms of content or format or whatever else is of concern. But the simple fact of reading is going to build readers. And once you've got them reading, then you can start introducing them into the idea that they might want a window into the world of the Latino community or into the world of one of our tribal folks or into the world of um, black people that, in my area, which is very homogeneous and very white, wouldn't often happen. So the step number one is, you know, kids need to find books that they're going to love to read. Read them, and then you can work with them. But if you try to lessen it, if you try to guide it, if you try to bully it, if you try to test it, if you try to, you know, running record it or any of those other things that we're doing to kids today, I don't think it's going to be effective. And it's certainly not that idea is certainly not a new approach. That's exactly the reading Uh, curriculum that I grew up with. Yeah, I think it's amazing that there's so many things, unfortunately, we're doing in schools today that aren't positive in that way. And just engaging children with books uh, can help them in such a deep, important way. And if we just read or allowed them to read, we could make great strides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, if there was one thing that I would really want parents to recognize, too, though, is the power of your own voice. You need to understand that when you read at home, it makes my job in school so much easier. With your voice that doesn't modulate well, 
with your monotone voice, with the mistakes that you make reading, you make my job easier because when your student comes to school, they say, oh, we're reading. We do that at home, too. It's important enough that we do it at my home so I can do it here with you. And when your student falls down and skins their knee and gets all bloody and is crying, they don't come running to me. They come running to you, the person that they love. And when the person that they love values the same thing that is valued in school, it makes our jobs, our jobs in school so much easier. You are so right, Ed. That really is important to understand that kind of partnership, that what happens at home is going to impact what happens at school and vice versa. So building that togetherness and that community that helps our parents and teachers work better together is an important thing we all need to understand. It sure is. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Ed. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. Bye-bye. Elementary school teacher Ed Spicer talking about helping your child become a critical reader. We finish up the show today with children's librarian Shauna Mundinger from the Orem, Utah Library, who reviews a picture book that tells the story about the real bear behind A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. The book is called Finding Winnie, the True Story of the World's Most Famous Bear by Lindsay Maddock. Everyone has a story, and this is the story of the world's most famous bear. It begins with a little boy asking his mother to tell him a story about a bear. And so she does. And it is the story of a young man named Harry Colburn. He's a veterinarian from Winnipeg, Canada. And it takes place a long, long, long time ago in the year 1914 during World War I. He's asked to go take care of the horses for the men fighting on the front. And so he travels by train across Canada to care for soldiers' horses. And one of these stops, he gets off the train, and what does he see? He sees a trapper, and the trapper is holding a leash, and at the end of the leash there is a bear. Well, Harry decides he should have that bear, and at that time he offers the man $20, which was a large sum back in 1914 and he gets the bear. He names him Winnie for Winnipeg. Winnie goes with him all over, whether in the fields of Canada or crossing the Atlantic Ocean or on England's rainy plains, Winnie makes friends. But then Harry is called to serve on the front lines and he knows he cannot take Winnie to the front lines and so He finds a place for Winnie, and that place is the London Zoo, and that becomes Winnie's home. You would think that would be the end of the story, but I'll read you what the author says. And her son says, is that the end? Or the little boy says, is that the end? Well, that's the end of Harry and Winnie's story, I said. But I don't want it to be over, said Cole. Sometimes, I said, you have to let one story end so the next one can begin. How do you know when that will happen? You don't, I said, which is why you should always carry on. And so this is the second part of the story. There was a little boy whose name was 
Christopher. And his father was named A.A. A. Milne. Christopher had a, a stuffed bear, and he just could not find the right name for that stuffed bear. But one day, he and his father went to the zoo, and who do they see but Winnie. And Christopher Robin has found the name for his bear. Not only has he found the name for his bear, but he asked his father to create stories for him about Winnie the Pooh. So this is a delightful story. It's well-loved, it's well-written, and the illustrations are magnificent. That was librarian Shauna Mundinger reviewing the picture book Finding Winnie, the true story of the world's most famous bear. We'll look forward to more reviews of books for young readers from other librarians in the future. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.